I was watching Scott move ahead. The ice was bending like a carpet. He was like, hey, I'm going to go, but you can't stop because if we stop, I might sink. And I was like, got it. Yeah, we're going. And the ice just starts making a big divot. He turned around and yelled, Pascal! And he actually broke through at this point. It was like you see in the films. Every time he would try and grasp the edge of the ice, it would just break. So I got on my stomach and handed my ski pole as far as I could reach, and he grabbed the basket, and I just said, do not let go. That's Pascal Marceau, Arctic explorer, record-setting mountaineer, and RCGS fellow. She's fresh off an expedition in the Canadian high Arctic with partner Scott Cox on skis in the depths of winter across the sea ice from Ellesmere Island over to the ice caps of Devon Island and back again, seven weeks, 650 kilometers. We're thrilled to have her as our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome, all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion, I'm your host, David McGuffin. Pascal Marceau has a long and impressive resume as a mountaineer and Arctic expedition leader. And as she gets into in this interview, part of her inspiration as a child came from reading Canadian Geographic magazine. And for just $28.50 plus tax, you too can find inspiration in the pages of Canadian Geographic. For that, you'll get six print issues filled with award-winning journalism, photography, and maps, and full digital access. Just go to canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. You'll be happy you did. So, Pascal Marceau. As a mountaineer, she has recorded a number of firsts, including the first recorded winter ascent of the 4,800-meter-high Mount Wood in the Yukon, which was also the first female winter ascent of a major peak in the subarctic. In 2021, she led the first all-woman ascent of Yukon's Mount Lucania, Canada's third-highest peak at 5,200 meters. Since then, she's focused on goals lower to the horizon, Arctic expeditions, including a crossing from Greenland to the Canadian high Arctic on sea ice, and the trip she is just back from, skiing from Ellesmere to Devon Island this year. So, let's get to it. Pascal Marceau, welcome to the Canadian Geographic Explore podcast. Thank you. I'm uh, super, super thrilled about being here today. It's actually sort of a dream come true, because I grew up on Canadian Geographic magazines on the coffee tables. Um, My mom was a teacher, and she would have these old discarded maps that she would roll down, um, and and so she'd bring them home, and we'd put them on the living room floor, and I would see these things from the magazines, places all over Canada, and there was a big map of Canada, and it had these little hot rod cars, (laughs) and we would just, like, move around the map throughout Canada, and so, you know, I just associate that memory that's, with Canadian Geographic. <laughs> that's so lovely. Yeah. There's something so tactile and wonderful about a map, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> and the magazine still produces them. God love them because so much of us are on our phones looking at maps and it's not the same thing at all. It's not. I, um, you know, love of map and compass. Orienteering for me in adventure racing, that's my background. That was the start of all the expedition stuff. <laughs> Nice. So I, I would like to, I mean, we'll, we'll get to, you've done some amazing treks and one very recently, but I'd, I'd love to know where this all began. You're from Sudbury originally? Yeah, so I'm born and raised in Sudbury, and um, actually I wasn't 
you know, my family wasn't a big outdoor family. No one was hunting and fishing. Uh, and so I was really into, you know, high school sports and stuff like that. Individual mm-hmm. sports weren't really uh, my thing yet. It was all just basketball, volleyball. <laughs> and yeah. then uh, it really wasn't until university where suddenly I discovered hiking. Um, and then I'd come home for the summers or whatever, and I, I would, you know, I took my mom out hiking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and, where was university? Like, where were these early trails? So, well, it was it was Ottawa U, um, mm-hmm. and I ended up meeting people that it, I learned about the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> I mean, I knew about them, um, mm. but it was like suddenly it was like, oh, there's these trails there that are supposed to be, you know, majestic or beautiful. And so that was, you know, we set a goal. We were going to do a few of the classics, you know, like the Vancouver Island, the West Coast Trail, and the Skyline, and the Rock Wall in the in Kootenay. So we just loaded up these hikes, and you know, here we here we were in the Rockies. And I think that was really the start. Um, there's su- there's such a. I mean, I do a lot of hiking. Just I'm in the Gatineau Hills, so I, I mean, I've got it right up my backyard. I'm very lucky, but I do it every day. It's much. For the exercise, but really for mental health too. It's so, I just find I'm in a much better zone every day if I've done like an hour hike alone in the bush with no one around me. I have so much to say about that. And, and, and there was a, um, yeah. a lot, a lot on the recent expedition on that, on that vein, but um, absolutely. I, I know it's, there's a lot of cliches on it, but it really does, whether it's half an hour or seven weeks that you're out in nature, there's yeah. something about it just clears the windshield (laughs) it just like calms all the noise and and you're just in the moment you really are and i think that's precious and it's available to you know if there's a park by the house you can you can get that in a short period of time yeah no and as a species it's kind of what we were born to do right i mean for millions of years after we since we got out of trees we've been on the move right i mean that's that's who we are that's actually one of my um, core beliefs. I, I believe we are we are born for motion, and that's why these expeditions, especially the longer projects, um, or even what I discovered on these, you know, most of these trips in the Rockies at the beginning, they were like three, four, five days, and it seems like your body just finds a flow. And, and even at this age, I mean, getting a little older and things hurt and you have a sore knees and you, <laughs> you have a wrist problem and you get on these, you just get out there. And when you simplify everything to yeah. get up, walk, eat, go to bed, yeah. repeat, it didn't yeah. take long. It takes about three or four days and magically everything just vanishes. All the aches and pains go away. And, and yeah. like, motion is lotion is so real. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly your body can recuperate just overnight even, you know? Yeah. It's interesting what we call normal. So, and, and this hit me when I came back from the expedition is basically, um, I, I felt like when I got back into, out of nature and into the modern world, there was noise and there's people and there's motion everywhere. And we call that normal. And for me, it actually felt surreal. So it was like the opposite, right? You go out on these big expeditions and people are like, it must be so surreal to be on the mountains or in the Arctic. And, and it's actually, actually no. Like when I, when you get out there, you close the door of the car or you disconnect the phone and you just start moving. 
that feels normal. It doesn't feel so real. That actually feels natural. So I challenge us to think about, I think about this all the time. I challenge us to think like, what is normal versus natural? And and I really think, yeah, it's a, a, the solution is in nature. (laughs) Yeah. We could talk just about this for like an hour, I think probably, but, (laughs) but I, I was going through your Instagram feed, which I absolutely I encourage everyone to go take a look at, especially for the last expedition. It's such a great detailed sort of log of what you went through up in the high Arctic. But uh, there's a quote in there somewhere. Uh, at one point you said, you know, you need to leave space for intuition, uh, which is something I really believe. And then Quincy Jones, who is a music producer, had a quote once. He said, you need to leave space for so God can walk through the room, you know. And I, I, I firmly, again, I think that goes back to just being in nature and being away and just you know, leaving room. And intuition, I think, is something we've actively shut down in the last century, definitely, like maybe half a century or whatever it is. But social media is all about quieting all that down, right? Exactly. The noise. I think we're so distracted or we're just so yeah. busy <laughs> that mm-hmm. we forget. I, 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 Intuition, that's such a good topic. Um, I just, sometimes this happened heavily on the latest expedition sometimes you it's not what you thought or it's not it's hard things are going well and you start to doubt yourself you start to be unsure you know did we like should we go here should we go there did we choose a project that we bite off more than we can chew what are we doing and and i i think the beauty is those answers especially when you're in nature and everything, all the clutter's removed, they come. And that's intuition, right? You're just following your gut. You're choosing a path that you have no idea if that's the right way. You have no idea if it's going to dead end or land you in a, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But even coming up with projects or coming following your passion, that's all intuition, right? We're not mm-hmm. sure. No one's, no one's sure what the right path is or you know, whether this is going to end up uh, as a, a bad project or a, whatever it is you're trying to do or start or it, it, if mm-hmm. it's just, I, I think whenever I lose confidence or I feel lost, I actually have to remind myself, uh, you know, just trust it, just trust it and go. Don't, yeah. don't second guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's get to this expedition because it is a pretty incredible one that you've just completed. And you're back now how many weeks? It's pretty recent, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on to like two and a half weeks now. So I still oh, I have a wonderful appetite, which is really, really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you can, um, you can basically eat and the scale's not going up and this high metabolism is going to be with me for a little bit. So I'm riding it. It's super fun. That's um, amazing. But we had yeah. a we had a really rough time. Um, we had a, a food snafu, which ended up um, being a big deal, and so we were okay. heavily depleted. Uh, so the return was actually a surprise. It's something I hadn't experienced. It's just how hard it yeah. had been on our muscles. Yeah. So let's plot this out, though. So you you left from Grease Fjord, right, which is the bottom of Ellesmere Island, so the very top island in, in the Canadian Arctic, right? Yeah. And then and the so, and what was the the goal from there? So, uh, the the project was it was called Arctic Off, <laughs> and Lovely. the project was to originally, originally, even before we got to Greasefjord, 
was to go from Greece Fjord, cross Jones Sound, which is south. It's the big body of water. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Arctic Ocean. And then you hit Devon Island. And then we were basically going to go like circumnavigate the east coast of Devon Island around Baffin Bay. And then you end up in Lancaster Sound, which is another big body of water that separates Devon Island from Baffin Island. Then we were going to cross that and head to Baffin Island. And the, the project was, you know, really focused, different from other projects where you're, you know, I was trying to do a first or this one was less about where we were going. And it was mm-hmm. more about the process, the journey itself. So when we planned this, we didn't know, you don't know what ice conditions are going to be like, especially these days with climate change. You, you don't know <laughs> until you're in the middle of this ice season. And so we didn't know if we would finish in Pond Inlet, Arctic Bay, or Resolute. All those hamlets were options. And we were heading out and going to decide based on what unfolds in front of us. But it didn't end up that way because, you know, in those high latitudes, they have polar night. So uh, when you're in polar night, the satellite images are black. And so you don't get to see the ice formations for the year until late February when the light starts coming back and the images start being published on the on the sites right. so um we could see Which is about when you're taking off really isn't it is right that... and i mean you already have to you're committed right you're going <laughs> but the, the irony is you actually don't know what you're going to do yet <laughs> and so we uh we it started showing up and we quickly realized that this was not going to be a good year for lancaster sound sometimes it's good the previous year was great you could ski across in some areas um, and it was evident that the ice formation this year was um, way too far west for us to cross to Baffin Island. So that means there was open water even? Yeah, with... fully, yeah. Fully open? Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. So, yeah, imagine this. It's like a big expedition of a lifetime. And, yeah. you, <laughs> you know, two weeks before you're departing Ottawa, you realize you're not going to do um, any of the options. We had plan A, B, C, and none of them were going to happen, so... We knew that we had to do a circumnavigation, and then instead of crossing Lancaster Sound, we decided to go back up to Greece Fjord, and it offered us an opportunity to cross back over the ice cap, which is great because now you get to do like multi-components. You get to see the sea ice, and then you get to see the ice cap, like different worlds. Wow. That's, so that Devon, uh, you're talking about on Devon Island? That's, that's right. It's, it's a full glacier basically covering yeah. most of it, right? Uh, the eastern part of it, yeah. The yeah. eastern part, yeah. So, and tell, you've got a partner on this, so tell us about your partner. Yeah, well, Scott's a good friend from Ottawa. Um, we've been adventuring together for years, mostly started on adventure racing. We, yeah. we um, got to go to Greenland the year before together. So, you know, we, I think everyone has dreamed about going to the high Arctic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I know for me, I... I, it, my, my background, you know, after those Rockies backpacking trips, it evolved to weekend warrior stuff. We would, we would go to the Adirondacks, right? That's what was close to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we would go to the Green Mountains. And then if we were lucky, we'd go to New Hampshire for bigger mountains and, and everything just progressed. And so my background's actually been mountaineering until just recently. I, over time, I've, I've learned that I, I have an affinity for the cold and I love it and I love it. I I just, I love ice and snow. I love winter and I feel good in the cold. 
nice. So um, the projects, my projects have slowly evolved to be more like winter ascents, winter mountaineering. And then suddenly it was like, you know what? Let's let's just switch this up. And instead of going from like the vertical world, let's try the horizontal world and let's go to the Arctic. And so that yeah. was kind of where that was all born. <laughs> Amazing. So there's the, you and Scott and you're, uh, you're on foot? Are you on skis? Are you on foot? You're That's right. We actually were staying at the hotel um, in Greasefjord on arrival. And the yeah. morning we started, we just literally skied right off the front deck. <laughs> <laughs> and you just, it's incredible in Greece Fjord, the sea ice is right in front of you. So we're on the sea ice right away. We're on skis yeah. pulling pulks. So sleds, like large sleds. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, the first kind of stage was to cross um, basically the sound, which was uh, a challenge. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that. From that trip, the really crossing a, a long stretch of sea ice seems it's the most frightening idea to me anyway, I have to say. What's interesting is that whole area, the sound and then the east coast of Devon Island and the one on the, uh, the south of Devon Island is called Lancaster Sound. All of it is, um, there's a huge polynia. And so polynia is an open, it's a body of open Arctic sea, of, of the, it's, it's water. <laughs> so it's not like little icebergs and some slushy ice, it's actually open water. Um, and so this polynia, it's, it's created by, it's been there for hundreds of years and it's there from, uh, warm water currents under in the ocean. And so the oh, water, awesome. that ice never freezes up and it makes it a lovely place for mammal, <laughs> marine mammal wildlife. So that's why, uh, like, you'll get polar bears, you'll get seals, you get walrus, the narwhals, uh, everything is there because of, it's, it's just a great place to be in and live as as a marine mammal so our journey had us going right along the polynia for most of the expedition until the ice cap and so a lot of days we were sandwiched between open water from the arctic sea and the beautiful arctic bluffs like these cliffs on devon island devon island is so featured it's got the ice cap on the top which you can see from the ice and then it has glaciers just pouring out on everywhere on the sides. And then um, it's, 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 it's incredible. So there's these cliffs and a lot of capes and points. And it's just, it's just incredible. Sometimes at Polinia, we get really close. And so we were threading the needle between, you know, capes and cliffs and open water. And so that actually... And how thick is the ice? Do you know? I mean, are you able to test um well we didn't test in but there are um different places where you can get sea ice thickness but um yeah. you know most so of the time just, this is intuition then again this is intuition and it, this can i can i do a little storytelling about sea ice <laughs> oh please no that's, that's what we're here for so it's it was just so different and i i i my analogy of the whole expedition actually is every day we were like in a new world. So it brought me back to like my young days uh, when I was playing Atari <laughs> uh-huh, nice. or Super Mario or whatever. And you would basically have a world. And then if you cleared that level, you would go to another world. And so it was like that for us every day. One day it would be like, yeah. all right, today's world is angular ice and it's really blue and it's got huge pitfalls in the middle of it. It's really hard to walk through. 
And so then we were like, what's tomorrow's world going to be when we pass this level? And then tomorrow's level, you know, you'd wake up or you'd look a little, get past some rough ice and you'd see this beautiful flat ice. And we'd be like, oh, today's world is an easier level. <laughs> or, or the, and then you'd get onto it and it was like, oh no, you'd discover some new form of ice and it would be like, we, we don't know the, you know, we were naming them, but it was like, this is popcorn ice. And it was like crunchy. Yeah. It sounded like popcorn. And so every day was changing. Uh, if I was an artist, I would just sketch what the no, ice no. was for every yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. And so then there was this one day about two thirds of the way through the expedition. Um, it was actually my birthday. And we were getting close to what's called Cape Warner. This, we're now on the south, um, side of Devon Island in Lancaster Sound and we knew before we left that there was the Polynia at that point was going to be really really close to Cape Warrender and we had a base camp support that was looking at satellite views and you know they were like it's really iffy we don't think you should go but there might be about 400 meters of of ice to travel through you might be able to thread the needle and we we were like it just looks so beautiful and and if we didn't go, um, we had to backtrack quite a bit and do a bypass up over the ice cap and, and back down. So it was going to add a lot of days. And at this point, we'd been having this food shortage. <laughs> we were on really strict rations. So we, it was really worth the gamble. So we decided, yeah. let's go. You know, we've been being, the ice has been good all along. Let's just try it. We'll turn around. It doesn't work. And we'll do the backtrack. So we committed to go. And we'd been in about, I don't know, six or seven days of rough ice. I mean, rough ice. Like, big piles of wrapped up sea ice, sometimes like 10 feet high. And you're moving like 400 meters an hour. <laughs> and you're like hauling, you know, two people to one pulk and with, pulling it with your hand. Like, then we, we got to this section of beautiful flat ice. And it just went for as far as we could see right to the Cape. And we were like, this is it. This is our break. We're finally past all the hard levels. Like, we're going to finish this game. <laughs> and so we hopped on this, like, really flat, frozen lead. And the ice was different, again. Mm-hmm. More different than anything we'd seen. And it looked like we knew it was fresh ice because we called it cauliflower ice. It looked like we were skiing on top of little heads of cauliflower. Mm. And it's like the salt is, like, leaching out of the ice. It's actually not fun to travel on, turns out, because it's <laughs> quite rough. It's like sandpaper. Yeah. Um, and so then we saw another lead next to it that was equally flat, but it didn't have the cauliflower ice. So we're like, oh, let's go there. So we hop over the little ice, you know, pressure ridge. We get on this one, and it's magic. It was shining, like glittering beautiful little crystals like like I compare things to skiing cuz like surface horror and yeah. <laughs> and and it was a little browner and my partner has a lot of experience. he's been in north pole and a lot and he had told me be careful brown ice brown ice is thin ice and i was like okay we know we're on thin ice now cuz it's been saltier the night before we couldn't find any drinking water we could not find anything that wasn't salty water which is not fun and a big problem um, and so we knew, okay, there's really, this is really fresh ice. And so we got on it carefully. And I was watching Scott move ahead. And he didn't notice, but the ice was like bending like a carpet. Oh. It's like, oh my God, it's plastic ice. 
I've heard of plastic ice. <laughs> so I'm like, we're on plastic ice. And you can travel on plastic ice. Um, but, you know, it's it's clearly newer ice. And so <laughs> so we started going, and, and we do a poke test, and you can sort of tell if it, if it breaks through or not. But it was good. We traveled for a solid hour on it, and we were making great progress. And we were like, wow, we're going to get the cape. We're almost there. It's, it's like It was just a special moment. And then we got to a little stretch, maybe about 10 feet wide in front of us. That was darker. And mm-hmm. so we're like, mm, that must be really thin. And then we looked, and there was, like, no way around it. It would have been, like, a huge detour. Huge. We couldn't see where the detour would have been. Mm-hmm. So we're like, let's just poke it. looks okay. And we'll just go through it really fast. And don't stop. <laughs> Can I ask how heavy your pulks are? How heavy are they at this point? Uh, they've been going down because about two-thirds of the trip, so we're... Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, they're for sure, I don't know, probably in the 120 pound, 130 pounds. They're a good weight. Yeah, they're heavy. And we're attached, so we're traveling like a train. Yeah. Scott's in front, I'm behind, and we're pulling our pulks. So we're like four little things moving forward um and so he was like hey i'm gonna go but like you can't you can't stop because if we stop i might sink and i was like got it yeah we're going okay and so he goes he travels maybe four feet and the ice just you know i've been watching it move i can see what the carpet's doing but it sinks a lot more like it starts making a big divot and so i was like (gasps) and so i froze (laughs) And then he turned around and yelled, Pascal! And I was like, oh my god, I froze, and so now he's sinking. And he actually broke through at this point. And so I was like, oh my god, I I just killed, like, I, oh my god, like, I made him fall in the water. But we then, when we debriefed this incident, that was not what happened. (laughs) That was what was in my head. But what happened was, he knew he was sinking. And so he turned around, like, to call for help or to warn me. Yeah. Anyhow, so it's amazing what the human condition or just... Yeah. You, I think we're just born with this. It was very calm and basically he, he went in and I it was like you see in the films. Every time he would try and grasp the, the shore, right. the edge of the ice, it would just break and he like just kept breaking the ice as he was trying to get back to me. I, I That's when I realized, wow, this is real. <laughs> wow. So I got on my stomach and handed my ski pole as far as I could reach and he could get a handle on it so he grabbed the, the basket and and I just said do not let go like no matter what you do never let go of this pole and, yeah. it, and his reaction was okay I'm gonna be okay <laughs> and so he started to like pull himself up but then when he pulled more ice broke and a big wave of water is coming towards me I'm lying on my stomach I'm getting wet and then suddenly I'm like oh my god the ice is gonna break or I'm gonna get pulled in or so I'm just like wait 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 like stop pulling <laughs> so we um what we did is I just kind of wiggled my way back and then he would move forward a bit I wiggled my way back and we gently pulled him that way until he got to where I had been lying and the ice was firmer there so he could haul himself out wow and so his bulk didn't go in after him it didn't that, they were both behind that's so me. lucky and that's actually part of really a huge reason it was ended up, ended up being okay so we got out and we just, um, he, you know, all soaking wet. He was submerged, full submersion. He was actually being pulled backwards. We we realized after the reason the ice was thinner there. We're at a cape. There's a lot of current. 
and uh, and that you know he he was being told by the current maybe it was high tide I haven't checked the timing yet but the tide might have been coming in or out but so anyways we just traveled really really fast for about five minutes like in zone five like full sprint <laughs> and tried to get to some firmer safer ice and while we were moving we were making a plan you know like okay I got spare long johns in this bag I got this and so that when we stopped he basically just stripped right away and I was pulling out all the stuff he, the dry clothes he would need and and so we took care of avoiding any kind of hypothermia <laughs> yeah what's the air temperature at this point minus 20 air in that area but we were really lucky there was no wind and it was sunny I mean you couldn't ask for a better condition so I mean once we were all settled and dry I mean the best thing to do is move so we just kept going <laughs> got out of there and went through back to the rough ice and kept going towards the cape <laughs> no way so you didn't oh wow that's amazing so you just changed clothes and kept moving because well, that's you, you know you can't dry the clothes <laughs> and even if no. you set up your tent you go in it you can't really warm up <laughs> yeah i mean it's you're not... warmer moving basically, <laughs> yeah exactly right? and so i wasn't cold because i didn't go in so i actually wore his base layer his wet soaked base layer and just moving with it eventually it dries just from your body huh. heat that's amazing yeah <laughs> wow Wow. Well, that's that's quite a day. <laughs> it doesn't end. It doesn't end. There's no. one more little part. So that night, we didn't quite make it to the Cape, and so but we were feeling really great. So it's like, you know, thanks for the birthday gift. You decided to do the polar plunge. <laughs> and so we did get to the Cape, but so we basically set up the tent. We had a big eventful day. And, you know, of course, there are polar bears. So this is a polar bear story. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and uh, we'd been seeing just so many polar bear tracks. We're in an area of the Arctic because of this polynia that is densely populated in polar bears. And right. nobody's there. So the hunters, they can't get there because the, the sea ice is too rough for the snowmobiles. They don't go with the dogs. Um, and there were days, often, we were seeing at least 30 bear 30 polar bear tracks, just crossing them. We'd had a couple encounters, nothing, um, you know. But that that night, so we're sleeping soundly after the whole polar plunge event. <laughs> and about 5.45, I wake up and I could hear Scott breathing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Scott doesn't usually like snore breathe like that. And I'm like, he, he's actually making a man, that ice plunge really tired him out. He's like sleeping really heavily. (laughs) And so in parallel, Scott's having his own version and he wakes up and hears and he's like, why is Pascal up? And she's outside rummaging in the pulks and and she didn't wake me up to like get started. And then he like rolls over and I'm lying there in my sleeping bag. (laughs) And so he has a realization that's not Pascal. And in the same moment, I had a realization. I'm like, that's not Scott breathing. And so we were like, oh, my God, it's a polar bear. <laughs> so, you know, Scott just says, grab the flares. And then yeah. I hear our polar bear warning fence start ringing. And then I was like, oh, my God. It's like there's, there's a polar bear or there's something that triggered the fence. And I was like, was the, was the fence ringing before? And i just hearing it now because I was kind of sleeping. And so mm-hmm. I don't know. And we don't know what's going on. Scott's like, well, we have to look. <laughs> so I, like, get on my knees and I open, I have my hand on the zipper in the vestibule and I'm just like, just like, 
I didn't say it out loud, but in my head, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And I'm like slowly opening the zipper and terrified that there would be this big face in, in front, right? But there was nothing there. And so um, we got, you know, get dressed quickly, get out, and then we could see the polar bear just running away, actually. And so once we got out, we could see what actually happened. We have a polar bear fence, and it's a trip wire, mm-hmm. and it alerts you and it wakes you up and hopefully deters uh, the bear with light and noise. Like noise, um, yeah. But that night, because we'd had such a big night day, we'd set yeah. it all up, but one side, there was like a big hump of ice in the middle, and we had the two posts on both sides, but a little 10-foot section of the trip wire was touching the top of the snow hump. So there was one 10-foot section of n- no polar bear fence, let's say. Um. And so we could see the tracks, and that is exactly where the bear went in. So he went into our perimeter right there, and he must have been injured or something because there were little drops of blood. And um, there was blood right at the tent wall where our heads were. And That's his- a really bad combination too, isn't it? Polar bear that's been injured on top of everything not, else. You know, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's actually a really positive bear encounter because, you know, all we said was our human voice, and it was kind of a calm, not screaming thing. It was just like, grab the flares, yeah. was enough to make him run. And then he tripped the, the wire on his way out. They were the largest prints we've seen in the whole trip. So by the time you got out, he was gone, gone. Yeah, gone. he was like, we could still see him, but we lost him out of sight yeah, fairly quickly. Which is fine. That's a photo you can pass on, right? That, that was <laughs> like, yeah, that was like a positive bear encounter. Because <laughs> yeah. they're really just not that afraid of humans, are they, right? And oh, they're not. Uh, but And so when, I, when I've been kind of recounting some of this stuff, like that's the drama, right? Everyone loves the polar bear story and the falling through the ice. Um, but I, I like... For, for me, what I really people um, have been asking a lot, like, well, why do you do this? Like, you mm-hmm. got you guys were like suffering because you had the food mistake. You got polar bears. You fell through the ice. The ice was rough, and there's like you know the the glaciers were dry. The crevasses were huge and open. They weren't we weren't expecting that. I mean, there's all the hardships of an expedition. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, you come back and you're saying it was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and so I I do want to talk about that a bit because I've been kind of mulling that. So let me ask you then, Pascal, why do you do this? (laughs) Well, so so I'm still, you know, you're still digesting the the answer, but um, I, I what I think is we need a certain level of discomfort. We Mm -hmm. need a certain level of um, suffering. And so, you know, I call this, this expedition was Arctic awe. I thought we were going to just shuffle on our skis, look at the beautiful Arctic scenery, maybe mm-hmm. see a bit of wildlife, and I would be in awe. And that's like really good, you know, all the benefits mm-hmm. and mental health and all that. That wasn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is not at all what I thought. But something happened, and it's about two and a half weeks in, where every time we saw we got into rough ice and it felt impossible. Like we'd been just really struggling, getting nowhere. Mm -hmm. And our time and distance estimates are nowhere what we kind of predicted and planned all our food and fuel on. And it gets discouraging. Um, You start to doubt yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I'm not meant for the Arctic. And these other people who do this are like superhuman and 
like, are we like in the wrong place? Did we choose a stupid Ruger? <laughs> and so you, am I weak? Am I not cut out for this? And all so- the doubt. What does that rough ice look like? Like, what, Can you describe that? Picture like flat ice that's been kind of pushed, crushed by pressures everywhere. And so they start to just break into pieces and fall, make like pyramids of yeah. angular ice. <laughs> so you're just hauling over these huge sort of mounds of yeah. like jagged yeah. ice, basically. Yeah? yeah. Wow. And at the start, I mean, we, we started in March, which is, you know, usually not when, pe- <laughs> when people go. <laughs> What do you mean by that? When do people usually go? And a beautiful time in the Arctic is May. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the sun, you know, you got 24 light. You got a lot more heat in the sun. And the big impact, though, in March yeah. is that you, because it's so snow, you, I mean, I'm sure you cross-country ski there in Gatineau Park. Um, there's yeah. not, you know, there's no glide. It's just so cold right. that it's rough. And so the pulks really, they're, they feel like an anchor. So anyways, I feel like, we're in in this world these days, um, at least in North America, we're conditioned to seek ease and comfort. We go from our climate-controlled mm-hmm. house to our climate-controlled car to our climate-controlled office. Or <laughs> and then we, you know, lo and behold, don't want to go outside in the winter because it might be cold or I don't want to sweat. <laughs> and And I think that when you experience discomfort, then when you get to a place where you're not, dis- you know, where it is comfortable or where it is smoother or where it is easier after having had a hard time, it mm-hmm. amplifies that, that good side. And so if you, we'd been really struggling first like 17 days and we got to a point where that day we had glide, the sun was shining and the ice wasn't as bad, we could, we could move through it. And, and I can't explain it's things that are hard to verbalize, but there's, that was the awe, right? I, I feel like sometimes people think awe means, oh, a state of bliss where everything's, you know, easy and comfortable and beautiful and you're just going, ah, but it's actually, <laughs> it, it, it is that, but mm-hmm. that gets amplified after a hardship. And I, and I think yeah. of it in day, in day to day now, I've been thinking about it in the last like three weeks since we're back. And I just think, you know, you have your to-do list and it stares at you <laughs> and, and you procrastinate on something, especially if it's one of the bigger ones because you're afraid to fail or it means a lot to you. And so you, you like hesitate on starting. And then when you finally start and you like take a little step and do it, you like get all absorbed into it. You're half an hour, half a day, whatever goes by and the task is done. And you're like, oh my God, that was not bad at all. I should have I should have done this two months ago instead of worrying about it for two months. All that to say that I I think the beauty comes in the contrast, and I think yeah. when you uh, you're forced to see yourself clearly in these yeah. situations where you think it's at the end, um, but what happens is you just take one step, you just do one little change and so when we got to these impassable parts we were just like well let's just bust through it there's nothing else we could do let's just like pull hard and eventually it should get better and lo and behold it does like you even though you scouted it and you stood up on these ice piles to to look out like where should we go and it looks like kilometers days of endless roughness but you just take a step change the perspective and there's always a way and 
even though we were experiencing that, every time it happened again, I would get discouraged. And, and so it was like, it actually was a life lesson. And we we live it all the time. Like, just just take yeah. that first step, get it, get it started. I mean, you talk about running out of food because of the tough conditions. And obviously, you're needing to eat more because you're burning so many calories, I guess. And I mean, at what point are you getting very concerned about that? And is, what's the solution? We had several reasons that led to the snafu. But um, one of them is our our um, supplies had been stored in Greece Fjord for an, an, a year because we didn't get to go when we were going to go. Presumably, yeah. Actually, it was, it was, we were supposed to cross over from Greenland. We were in Greenland the year before. and um, Oh, this was a resupply, basically. It was our halfway resupply, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, some of our daytime snacks, you know, like the fresher stuff, like homemade beef jerky and cheese and all that, um, we tested it all in Greece Fjord, and it was okay. But it turns out the ones we tested were okay, but everything else wasn't. So it was like fuzzy and moldy, and we oh. so we lost a lot of our daytime calories. Um, and then on day seventeen, we were tent bound for a windstorm, and so we decided to inventory all our food. And to our great horror, we discovered that we'd made a mistake in calculating because our rations in Greece Fjord had been for a three person team. And 39 days and then we converted that to 49 days and two people and when you're counting six six dinners for three equals how many dinners for two anyhow we were in a sleep deprived state when we arrived in Greece Fjord and we made a math mistake and we actually wow. shipped some food back home <laughs> and it turned out we were no. nine days short and um, wow. that's a lot and so we realized that on day 17 so we uh implemented a strict ration plan and turned all our our breakfasts were pretty hearty so we cut our breakfast in half and had breakfast for dinner <laughs> uh and we were really counting you know we were yeah. counting squares of cheese um but yeah. but it worked we stuck to the plan and we got we got to the end <laughs> really just on those rations we did That's amazing yeah huh so what, like, what what is a breakfast um, a breakfast is stone-cut oats with a lot of hemp hearts, chia seeds. Um, we throw in some chunks of butter and coconut flakes. And I don't even like oatmeal, but this was good. This was Scott's recipe. It was really good. <laughs> but thank God, because we ended up having it for breakfast and, <laughs> and supper. <laughs> and then, I mean, what's lunch? Are you just eating power bars on the on the go? Or is uh, it... Lunch is like a salami and some cheese and power bars and some chocolate and some nuts. Your usual little nibbly things. <laughs> it sounds like there was no typical day, but I want to find out what a typical, like how long are you out there? I mean, what, what are you hoping to achieve in terms of hours moving forward? And I like that you actually said hours because that's actually one of the key things on these longer journeys is to be in a, in, have a schedule and so, yeah. and stick to it. Um, so we basically got up at six and it would take us about three and a half hours from the minute we wake up to actually moving just to melt water, have breakfast, tear down the bare fence, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was our general schedule. Of course, it you get faster as it gets warmer. <laughs> Everything gets a lot easier after March. <laughs> um, and then we generally moved between eight to 12 hours. Uh, and then we would stop, and then the same thing. We had our certain time frame for the evening camp. Um, but when we started rationing, uh, for a whole, like, you know, sometimes we'd go really, really hard, and then we would do, like, these active recovery days, which weren't active recovery days. <laughs> they were full on, but we like to tell ourselves, and that was because they were shorter. <laughs> they were, like, eight hours instead of 12. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, again, about this hardship, I, I talk a lot, I make it sound like it was so hard. Mm-hmm. But once we changed our mindset, and I think yeah. like once you reset your expectations and you're like, okay, yeah. this is what it is. It's not what I thought it would be. Yeah. Everything changes. And suddenly it's like, at first I was like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe people do this. Like, why are we doing this? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not having fun. And then suddenly nothing's changed other than your mindset. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly it's beautiful. Everything's okay. And that's what I mean by it's important. Like, I feel like if you experience, you have to experience the resistance mm-hmm. to actually feel that special flow it's a flow and i mean i have people who uh, friends you know who have done those prolonged meditation camps or these 10 day and and they experience the same thing where you're sitting still your body is in pain and and you don't know how you can do this and suddenly it it all just goes away it's it's magical (laughs) yeah and this comes up so often on this in this podcast too is how important adapting your sit to your situation is and like the willingness and the need to be able to adapt is so important. It sounds like you guys figured that out pretty quickly. I, I'm not saying like you have to be a masochist and, and you have to suffer to experience flow and awe mm. and all this stuff. But I am saying, yep, you need to do hard things. <laughs> yeah. Like push that bubble, take that chance. And I think a lot a lot of times we either have self-doubt or we we just think like I'm not ready enough I'm not trained mm-hmm. enough I'm not fit enough I didn't take an arctic rescue course or I'm not I'm, I don't have the skills quite yet maybe I'll do this before I launch that and we, so we don't go <laughs> and again it's take the chance mm-hmm. do something hard and it's incredible how adaptable human beings are and you yeah. and how we discover that we have a capability to do so much more than we think, and that surprises me still every time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you come across any communities at all, or you, you, just the two of you the whole time? We saw no one. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. No communities. Um, we did go by um, Dundas Harbor, which is a historical site for the RCMP, um, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know that's kind of neat. But there were some really special moments throughout where you would just be overcome by this feeling of you know again part of that just awe or that flow of wow there are people who have been here you know hundreds of years ago looking at these same capes going around these same points that's amazing (laughs) i was just in cambridge bay just before christmas and wound up talking to a one of the old, an old hunter there was head of the Hunters and Trappers Association, but he was—I mean—he grew up nomadic, like fully nomadic as a kid in the fifties, and would be out on the sea ice as a kid for they'd be out there for months at a time, and it's just—it's just that that adaptability, like you know, their their entire life was adapting, you know, all the time. Every season it was different. Where was the best place this year to get this? And yeah, just it, it's it's mind blowing, and for you to have been sort of in that territory. We had just such a good experience um, in Greece Fjord with the community there. Uh, because Greece Fjord is like the sister community to Connacht. Uh, and we had been in Connacht. We lived in Connacht for the whole winter and spring the year before. 
we that's in Greenland. Raised, yeah. yeah, it's in in north, very northwest Greenland. It's like one of the northernmost communities, and we went there to acquire dogs. We trained our dogs and then um, ran the dogs through all the different little villages. Um, so we made some great friends, and because there's always been a connection between Greasefjord and Connick, I mean, it's all one to them. They've been going back and forth across there for thousands yeah. of years. <laughs> um, and so we had common friends. And so we met these people in, in Greasefjord. Of course, we were looking for the people who had dog teams and <laughs> talking to the hunters because we wanted to know what the condition was of the ice and the, you know, the polar bear populations and the, and the seals and all that. And so it was just fascinating because, you know, when we came back, we were so excited to reunite and exchange stories about what the conditions were like, what were the encounters and just, and they have such an appreciation because, the, you know, we, we both under, you know, we both understand what it's like to be on the ice for a, a prolonged period of time. So it was just yeah. a really special connection in, in people in Greece Fjord are just amazing. It was just and they actually had maps. Yeah. They had maps with like uh, traditional routes from, you know, hundreds of years. And it turns out we were on some of the traditional routes, which is, you know, really neat. It, it makes sense. You're choosing the best terrain to be traveling on. But it's kind of neat yeah. to hear this, those stories. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sort of what, you know, what, whatever European explorers were looking into like 150, 200 years ago. I mean, that's nothing you know really the yeah the inuit have been all over up there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years yeah it's just fascinating that the north the arctic it really is (laughs) it's got something special and and i think it has to do with sometimes for me anyways you feel it when you're up there um you are remote and you are isolated and so you suddenly depend on you rely on each other there's a there's an unwritten Mm -hmm. rule that everyone's got everybody's back and it's felt. <laughs> yeah, and there's a real sense of community, which is lovely. So I lived in Africa for like six years and the two places remind me of each other, which seems completely doesn't make sense. But in terms of people and the courtesy of the people and yeah, that whole sense of community, it's it's very, very similar in that way. And it's, it's lovely, yeah. So we had the most wonderful finish to our expedition um, because we mm-hmm. were we were kind of running out of food um, and we'd had, you know, there's a lot. (laughs) Um, We knew we wouldn't have enough time and food to, once we got off the ice cap back on the north side of the island, to ski across the sound again back to Greasefjord. So we had Mm -hmm. people start um, looking for hunters that would be interested in coming across to hunt, but also pick us up. (laughs) (laughs) with their comments and so we did manage to uh arrange that and it was just the most wonderful thing like they found us on the sea ice and they arrived with like country food and they knew that we were we had no food left they picked us up we had half a day's food left (laughs) and then instead of going back to civilization in greece fjord we like went to the hunter cabins and hunted for two days (laughs) and just like gorged ourselves on just yummy food it was just so you couldn't dream up of a better just a more so special lovely so special wow. experience and finish <laughs> what are you eating are you eating caribou or what, what's on the menu well there, there wasn't um there's not that much caribou up there it's actually mm-hmm. higher or lower but in right there it's uh, muskox yeah. and polar bear and seal are the main 
uh, things. And then nice. once the water starts to break up, then you're, you're into the narwhals and the walrus. But so yeah, polar bear seal. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> I mean, what other wildlife? I mean, we got the good polar bear story, but was there other wildlife you saw at all? Or we saw a uh, Arctic fox. Um, oh, cute! Yeah. Which is you know, and we even had a curious one, so that that was super special. At the end, we saw a snow bunting; they were starting to come. Um, we saw ravens; oh, wow. they're really cool. They check in on us every morning. It's so neat oh, for wow. days and days and days. This pair of, of ravens. <laughs> no way! Yeah. You have like a real relationship with them after a while. I'm sure <laughs> it was really neat. But um, yeah, we didn't. Did see you name thoughts. them? No. <laughs> We talked to them, though. <laughs> it was someone new to talk to. Exactly. <laughs> you haven't heard this anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually, one thing to note, you know, and that, w- that hit us is the silence. I've never, you know, we, we hear a lot about dark sky nights and dark sky sanctuaries and, and the, you know, but there sh- there, there's this other... I have ex- never experienced the depth of the silence when there was no wind <laughs> and you weren't moving. It was the most still and complete silence I've ever experienced. I don't know what, you know, outer space is like, but I think it would have been close to that. There is not a sound. We never had an airplane go over. We just, it's just silence. And our brain is so conditioned to sound that sometimes when we were skiing, you'd hear like sounds. And, and I would think it was like a lawnmower or like I, it sounded like something that I had to identify. But it was just so weird because there was like no, nothing. <laughs> yeah, I totally know. What you mean. I was on a whitewater canoe trip last summer and was coming up to rapids and heard it as traffic noise initially. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, that's very funny. I just I mean, that that. And we had David Saint-Jacques, the astronaut, on the podcast okay. a couple of years ago. And he, he talked about that very similar things. The the silence in space, and he compared it to, he grew up in Quebec in the Eastern Township. So being in the woods in winter, like minus 40 degrees, nothing's moving. He, he said that silence and the silence of space were very similar. So you, oh, the, you're right, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it was, wasn't every day, but it was so profoundly different that we noticed it and we would comment on it. And it happened often. So, yeah. yeah. Did you have music? Did you play music as you skied, or is it just you're just in nature fully? I brought an iPod, which I never, and I tried it one day, and you yeah. know it was okay, but it's it's not my thing. <laughs> yeah, you just you know in your world, and, it, and it's I. Yeah, it's better to be fully present, really, right? You really are, and and some days we would chat, and some days we wouldn't. And, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you you made it back alive, which was huge. <laughs> <laughs> there were times we weren't too sure. I'm serious. No, I know. It was like, uh, yeah. this, we don't know how to get <laughs> past this. Some of the glaciers, oof, getting onto the glaciers, getting off the glaciers, that was probably the moments where we were more like, we might actually die, die here. <laughs> are there plans to return or are you just sort of decompressing now and figuring figuring things out? Uh, I'm certainly decompressing now, but the whole like dreaming of future things that never stops. <laughs> Good. Good. Um. So even when you're on the expedition, you're already dreaming up the next projects. Um. Uh, and so, yeah. I mean, the queue is long, and just dreams and ideas. And I'm I'm just so thrilled that that you know, someone actually we had a 
a Q and A on the on the storm day one day where we asked people on Instagram like ask us anything, and someone asked, you know, what are you most proud of on this expedition mm-hmm. so far? Mm-hmm. And it was really easy to answer, and and the answer was, I'm proud that we dreamt up this project, yeah, like had this idea, and then number two, do what you have to do to get there, which is hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're involved it's not that it's complicated it takes commitment and time and yeah, yeah it's not cheap and num- it's, it's not yeah. cheap it's a, it's a sacrificing other things <laughs> yeah and number three we're doing it here we are yeah. and we're yeah. actually doing it and so I, I just wish I'd like whatever whatever people's passions are whatever things are mm. just allow yourself to dream it and then just do it. Yeah. Your um this podcast is called Explore. What does it mean to you to be an explorer? What is an explorer? I think to- it's like not necessarily about planting a flag or being a first. Um and more about having a willingness to go out there and let the terrain draw your new maps. Let the terrain draw your life maps. Let let whatever unfolds unfold, but go see. <laughs> and one last question before I let you go. Um, is that, and I ask a lot of people, is, is what, do you have a favorite place in Canada? Maybe a happy place you go to in your mind when you need to calm down or a place you like to visit just to be I have find two peace answers. I, okay, we'll give you two. Number one, I think the Canadian Rockies are certainly Canada's it's a gem. Yeah. Um, they're yeah. just breathtaking and the mountains are powerful. I, you know, I traveled a lot and, and I still come back to the Rockies as number one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my calming place where if I just need to breathe is actually the Canadian shield and the Ontario lakes, a good, yeah. nice canoe trip, mm-hmm. a sunrise or a sunset on, you know, the water with the morning fog lifting and you just on sitting on some Canadian shield with some evergreens or jack pine next yeah, to you is amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Throw in a loon. Throw in go. the loon, yep. <laughs> Cue the loon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well I hear you on that. Well listen, thank you so much for sharing us. What what an incredible adventure and we look forward to having you back on in the future to hear but what's coming up next. Yeah, well it's it's been a pleasure and I'm excited. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Pascal. Take care. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review us. It helps others to find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again. I'm David McGuffin.